You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. They slaughtered us. They burned us. They drove us from our homes. Those three disturbing sentences hold a key that unlocks the very heart of storytelling. Hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I believe, as you know, that readers are leaders. That's why I've chosen Audible as our sponsor. They're offering you, the listeners of this show, a downloadable, free audiobook of your choice. You get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. I love getting comments from the listeners, from you, the storytellers. Different opinions, different takeaways, different moments of inspiration. Keep those ideas coming and also your comments about what you'd like to see in this show going forward. Send them to loseclub at gmail.com. That's L-O-U-S. CLUB at gmail.com. And if you're a regular listener, you're obviously getting some value from this show. Let other people know about that and increase the visibility of the show. Pay it forward by paying a visit to iTunes and leaving a brief review sharing your takeaways. And at the same time, give us a five star rating. And thank you in advance for doing that. Today's guest has the key, and he will reveal the meaning and the secret behind those opening sentences. He's a cultural anthropologist, international speaker, and storytelling consultant. He's lived and worked in over 30 countries, delivered over 1,500 stage presentations, given hundreds of live TV and radio interviews, and written two speeches that were presented to members of the UN Security Council. He reported for Newsweek on the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. His reportage of the violence in Sudan helped make humanitarian crisis in Darfur the biggest news story of 2004. He has appeared on the BBC, CNN, Fox News Online, and in the New York Times. Today, he advises and trains entrepreneurs, executives, and corporate teams on high-performance communication, the power of storytelling, and how to leverage digital technology to build a personal leadership brand. Get excited and open your mind to learn from Dr. Adrian McIntyre. Adrian, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm delighted to have you here. So, Adrian, right off the top, who spoke the three powerful sentences that opened the show? So this was a young man named Juma, 
and he was living in a uh, a camp for displaced people. Generally, we would call them refugees, but unfortunately, there's a distinction in international law that if you have suffered misfortune, but not enough to drive you across an international border, you're not a refugee, you're an internally displaced person, which is a little goofy, but the distinction matters in terms of uh, the way that the United Nations approaches these terrible crises. Anyway, Juma was a kid who was homeless, had been uh, driven away from his home in western Sudan, along with, in this particular camp, close to 200,000 people at the time that I was there. This was 2004, and he was telling me what had happened uh, right before he and his aunt had fled from their village. And um, he was he started uh, kind of repeating this little, I mean, I, it's a, I don't want to make light of it by calling it a poem, but it, it had a certain rhythm and rhyme to it, as he said, they slaughtered us, they burned us, they drove us from our homes. And he was telling me a story that I had heard, I don't know, a thousand times before. And when I've shared this little incident with people, the, 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 the real light bulb moment for me came when I realized that I had been taking those stories for granted in a way. In other words, they had just become data. You know, I was in Darfur as a media spokesperson for one of the largest humanitarian relief agencies in the world. We were working right in the middle of this conflict, and there were two sides to our work. On the one side, we were providing life-saving uh, services to people there, clean water, uh, sanitation, uh, community health initiatives. You know, it's crazy that a simple case of diarrhea can kill a child living in, in really difficult circumstances. Nobody should die from diarrhea, Right. And yet it's the sometimes in extreme conditions, the simplest case of an illness or infection or you know, what we in the West might just refer to as a bit of tummy trouble, right, can be fatal. Mm -hmm. So here I was listening to this kid tell me a story that I had heard before, but something about the way he said it really cut through the, the callousness that had grown up around the story for me. But, you know, as an outsider, I had been there for almost 14 months. And I had been telling this story, but I hadn't really let it get under my skin because at some level you can't. I mean, it was a story of, of such scale and, and, and human suffering. At some level, it was just a little bit too much. Uh, but yet it was a story that needed to be told. So uh, over the years, and, and um, you know, I've, I've used that, that moment in my own experience as a kind of a wake-up call to what story really is. You know, I had been doing storytelling as a journalist and as a spokesperson and also as a social science researcher. I mean, language and, and studying story was an academic as well as a professional pursuit. But it was this one kid's story that made me realize that this is profoundly human. And I had stopped relating to it that way. So he, he's the one who jarred me from my slumber, so to speak. And can you articulate a bit more about how your view of storytelling transformed because of that event. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, yes. And the other thing to say is, you know, I, I, when, we re when we relate stories from the past, it, it's easy to tie them up into a neat little package, right? Like, I met a kid, he changed my view, it changed my life, right? And it's a little bit messier than that. In reality, it's something that I really grappled with. 
uh, as I came to terms with my own story and what had led me to that point and how I could then begin to serve others by trying to get them connected to this realm of story. So fundamentally, what I, what I realized over, the, over time with thinking and further study and talking to other folks is that something I often say uh, when I'm speaking on stage, story is something that is natively human, which means every human being has native fluency in the language of story. You know, we're really born into this phenomenon called story. We live our entire lives inside of this phenomenon. And there are times when we are telling stories, right? But there's something bigger than that, like capital S story, that our reality is a linguistic construct. And we live as much through the story as the act of telling it, right? So, you know, I don't want to get too esoteric right out of the gate here, but fundamentally what I began to realize is that it's not only that we see stories around us and then we tell them, it's that the stories we were already telling ourselves about ourselves shape what we can see. And that storytelling is, is like water, for a fish. We are human beings living our lives in an environment called story, just like fish live their lives in an environment called water. And just like fish don't see water, what they see is what they are looking, you know, they look through the water at whatever they see. And the, the quality of the water changes how they see. If the water's murky, if it's, you know, uh, cloudy, you know, there's not much light, then they can't see very well. Right? It's the same with us. We don't see story very often. What we see is a function of the story. Uh, and that was not the way that I was thinking about this um, you know, in, 15 years ago. Um, it was much more instrumental. It was much more about, well, I've got to write a certain number of words and get them in by a certain time, you know, in a very kind of practical approach, which is important, uh, but it wasn't the, the whole thing. I agree. Um, absolutely. I mean, the, I love that, that analogy of the, the story being, um, like to us, what, what water is to a fish and that the reality we perceive is really de- determined by the story. Yeah. And unless we see the story, we don't know that. We're not really fully conscious. Correct. And therefore, we, we tell ourselves uh, small s stories all the time um, without recognizing the role of big s story uh, in our lives. So we tell ourselves stories like my boss is a jerk or, uh, you know, my kids don't love me or whatever. <laughs> Who knows, right? We tell ourselves silly small s stories and we're sure that those are the truth. And we've got, because we can't see the lenses we're looking at the world through, uh, we we don't see that a lot of these things are not the truth. They are interpretations we put together in response to stressful situations. And then we started living like they were the truth. I mean, one of the stories I really grappled with after coming home from, uh, you know, nearly a decade off and on uh, of professional work in Africa and the Middle East was the story called, It Doesn't Matter nothing's going to make a difference. We can't actually 
save humanity from ourselves. Things are too messed up. And certainly I can't do anything about it. We tried, you know. Um, and uh, it was awakening to the role of story in life, not just my life, that helped me realize, oh, sure, if I tell myself that story, there's a certain set of actions that then unfold and I, and you know, probably involve excessive drinking and other inappropriate life choices, right? Uh, it's no accident that some of our most gifted storytellers have found that darkness was a bit too consuming, um, whether they were journalists or novelists or filmmakers or uh, artists or entrepreneurs, right? This, this stuff is real. The darkness is real. And yet, what I found was that glimmer of hope. Wait a minute. If I can change my story, what if I can help someone else change theirs? And then what if doing that changes the way they interact with people, which gives those people a better life and a better future. Maybe there's more to this than saving the world, right? Maybe, look, we didn't, although we got, not directly, because we weren't the ones responsible for the Save Darfur movement in 2004, but we were certainly the ones in fueling it with field-based stories and data. We got hundreds of thousands of college kids marching that year, you know, with signs, Save Darfur, right? And we did not save Darfur. We didn't. It is now 2018, not 2004, and that conflict still rages. Those people are still displaced. I don't even know if Juma is alive, right? I have no way of knowing that. We didn't save Darfur. And we may not save the world, right? But what if we can serve the world? What if we can use our voice and our ears to listen better to others, to help them connect with stories about themselves and others, and we can actually begin in our small way to change things. I mean, that's what it's all about for me. So again, I know, super high level, kind of shooting up into the clouds here, but at some level, if we can change a story, we can change the story. The story that we are separate, the story that those people are a threat or a problem, because this is a human phenomenon, and we forget that. I don't think it's, um, you know, esoteric or, like you say, super high level. I think... It's important. I think people can understand it, and it's something that should be talked about. What um, what you're triggering in me is I started thinking about uh, Albert Camus and the sure. myth, the myth of Sisyphus, which basically says that Sisyphus is condemned to push this rock and to get it to the top of this mountain and keep it there, which is impossible because the moment it gets there, it rolls down the other side. Right. So he's he's screwed, but he gains, he becomes free when he recognizes that it's not important if it stays at the top. What's important is that I commit to the process and behave as if it can. Which is what you're saying, like, well, mainly, you know, uh, we're not going to change the world. But if everyone says, I can make a difference and behaves that way, change will happen. Will there be an ultimate change? Probably not. But it will be a better place to live. Yeah. And I think that that, that the, the kinds of questions Camus is grappling with there are are 
profoundly relevant to everyone, although not everyone will grapple with them. Mm-hmm. You know, the question of, is life inherently futile? <laughs> like you, could, you could spend your professional career trying to answer that question, as Camus did, uh, or you could just get up and go to work and feel a sense of gnawing emptiness in your guts every day, right? And come home and drown it in a six-pack and, uh, you know, get up the next day and do it again, right? It, it, every range of action is possible and it doesn't change the question or its, or its impact. Mm-hmm. And for for me, as a professional storyteller, as a practitioner, but also as a human being who's fascinated with being human, this is the fundamental question. It's not. It's not really about w- because the question matters, not so much the answer. How you answer the question for yourself matters because it affects the quality of your life. So if you decide the 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 world is screwed and there is no hope. And that's your answer that gives you one set of, you know, actions to take, one set of possible futures. If you decide engaging in this world, pushing the rock, if you will, up the, up the hill is a worthwhile pursuit, right? It is worthy of my life to push this rock up this hill. Whether it is or isn't, it changes your experience. And that's, it turns out, a pretty significant thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Camus even took it a step further. He said, basically, there's only one question that matters. Does life have meaning or not? And will you commit suicide? And if you answer, no, I won't, then you have a responsibility to give that process meaning. And, you know, it's it's interesting that before Camus, there was a guy named, uh, you know, Willie Shakespeare. Right. In a play called Hamlet, to be or not to be, that is the question. Yes. And said it all in that short, terse phrase, this sentence, if you like. Uh, It's amazing. Yeah, at some level, you know, Lewis, you and I and everyone listening to this are engaged in our own answers. In other words, one of the ways I, as an as a anthropologist, look at the world is what we're seeing are a set of practices, right? When you and I have a particular set of practices that involve communicating professionally with the public, right? There are plenty of other people who will not choose that particular path, but they are still engaged in a set of practices in their own daily life. Every one of those practices are answers or is an answer to the question, what's it all about? Mm. What's this for? And who am I in the face of it? Some people are going to answer life's questions with a narrative in which they're a victim, in which they can't do anything about it, in which they, there's no hope. And they're going to they're gonna live, and they're, they might even flourish inside of that narrative to the extent you can. You, uh, this is the, inter- the other twist on this, at this high level of, of inquiry here, is we cannot judge one set of answers as better. No. That's just those answers. So somebody who decides, listen, I'm going to, I have a voice, I'm going to use my voice. It's not making a better set of choices than someone who puts their head down and is a workhorse and takes care of their family and doesn't podcast and doesn't, you know, create social media content and doesn't speak on stage. I mean, look, those are all equally ridiculous forms of human activity. If you mm-hmm. zoom out, mm-hmm. yeah, life, no, it's you know, true. we're all chimpanzees with a stick, right? Poking it into a log to get ants on the stick so we can lick it off. At some fundamental level, like how we spend our time 
boils down to that. You know, we are tool makers and storytellers, and we want to stick our stick in the log and lick the ants, and that's our life, right? And it's it, it, for me, the kind of ridiculousness of that explanation is empowering because it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's all made up. It's all kind of goofy and silly. And this is my version of licking ants off the stick, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and talking about it to other people. Um, the, the one thing that, you know, I, I really want try to, as, as I've struggled over the years to find ways to make these things hit home for people, um, one of the things that I've, that I've, a way I've tried to describe this way of thinking is as human beings, we are fluent in this language of story and we're telling stories and adding descriptions to reality all the time. We just don't realize that we're doing it. Because the nature of our linguistic intelligence is narrative is a core part of how we think. It is how we see the world, how we connect with others, and it's just running in the background the way that anything that is that you have native fluency in is invisible to you, right? Mm-hmm. It's just in the background. It's how we do it. So we are adding our descriptions to reality every day, all the time. And what we fail to realize is that reality itself doesn't care about the descriptions we have of it. So, for example, I have a a chair here in my office, and I could tell you that this is a great chair. I could tell you that this is my favorite chair. I could tell you that this is a chair from Costco. I could tell you that, you know, or if it was a different chair, I could say this is an antique chair. This is something significant in my family. This was my grandfather's chair. I could tell you I hate this chair. This is an ugly chair. This is the worst chair ever, right? The chair doesn't care about any of those descriptions of it. It just sits there doing its job, being a chair, soldiering on, if you will, in the realm of physicalness. The human self, however, is not a chair. In some very profound way, we do not understand this core philosophical principle, which is that the human self is a story. It is a narrative linguistic phenomenon. There is no chair there. When you say I, there's some object you're referring to, but it is not an object like a chair is an object. It is a linguistic construct, and we don't know that. So we talk about ourselves in the same way as a chair, and we say, like, oh, I'm, I'm terrible at this, or you'll hear this every day. Oh, I'm just not the kind of person who blank, right, whatever the thing is. We're talking about ourselves as if there's this physical thing there, and, well, you certainly have physicalness. You have a body. Right, but you are not your body, uh, and the way we describe ourselves profoundly creates ourselves in ways that the chair is unaffected by our words. We are created and constituted in and through our words. We don't know that. We don't live like that, and we develop this habit of talking about ourselves and others as if they are fixed objects with properties that that are out there in the world. If we could collectively wrap our heads around the fact that at some very fundamental level, what we call reality is a set of sentences, both literally in the form of linguistic utterances, but also sentences like a life sentence. Like we are sentencing those around us to our descriptions of them. You know, my boss is a jerk. That's the... that, that, that's the premise of my of my show, basically. You know, um, that's one of the reasons I was excited to have you on. Um, I love what you said before about you know that you can't judge 
the way people give meaning to it. I mean, I've often thought about artists, and I think I've said art is a form of elegant bleeding. <laughs> e- e- everyone's bleeding, you know, they express it in an elegant way to give meaning to their pain. Now, how does brain chemistry change when we hear a story? This is on a different level. Sure. This would be, you know, why story is so important in communication uh, to get people's attention, etc. Well, this is the fascinating thing because it, it reminds us of the fact that story is not just an invisible, you know, thing. It's not just out there and it has no substance to it. Uh, just as our linguistic utterances have uh, some substance and some impact, right? So when I speak now, the, my, the waves that travel from my vocal cords out of my mouth and vibrate the membrane on this microphone right in front of me and are converted to electrical signals that travel into a box that travels through the Internet that travels into your little box, Right, So my linguistic utterances have a physical form and it can impact things. Story works the same way on our brain and there's some fascinating neuroscience that has revealed this to us. You know, Paul Zak, for example, studied the way in which story can trigger the release of oxytocin. Powerful, powerful hormone that uh, affects the way we feel in a very, I mean, this is one of the strongest drugs uh, in existence, I often say to people that um, we we need to we need to wrap our heads around the fact that stories are psychoactive substances. And a story, if if you think about a horror movie, for example, the interplay of the story and the soundtrack triggers cortisol, the stress hormone. You are getting physically anxious in your seat. Fascinating experiment, by the way. If you ever want to see what it's like when this does not happen. Watch a horror movie with the sound turned down to zero. If you take away the sound of a horror film, you take away the soundtrack and the story, but especially the soundtrack because the music is used to manipulate us, which is what makes them so good, so compelling. If you turn down the sound on a horror movie, it is no longer scary. Even if you've never seen it before, you could be watching the most horrific thing and it's not it's not scary because there's no anticipation. There's no, you're not your emotions are not being manipulated. In other words, cortisol and adrenaline, two other powerful chemicals, are not being triggered. So, we need to understand that when we say story connects us as human beings and a lot, helps us organize our minds, brings us together, we are talking about a, a, a kind of a shared neurobiology, and. When I tell a particular kind of story, it is changing your brain chemistry, which is having an effect on you physically. You might be experiencing a swelling of emotion. You might be experiencing a pounding heart, you know, an increased uh, heart rate, increased pulse, increased skin temperature. I mean, we are changing our body chemistry with story. And that's partly why, as humans, we love story so much. Because we love anything that changes us and that change, you know, like that dopamine hit that comes with curiosity and intrigue and, oh my God, what's going to come next? What's going to happen? Story is one of the most powerful psychoactive uh, uh, phenomena in our experience. And, um, and, and that's why Hollywood does such, you know, such a booming business. That's why really great songs in any genre can really cut through to us and, like, we get hooked on 
the story. We get hooked on our response to the story in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it uh, goes right to the level of our dreams and uh, allows us to live there for a while. And uh, that's a pretty intense place to live. Uh, now, I, you've kind of explained what you mean when you say that, in a way, people don't need to learn how to tell stories because they're hardwired. They're doing it all the time. We're doing it all the time. But are there aspects of storytelling that must be studied and practiced if you want to be intentional about the way you use stories to affect people? Well, absolutely. And and this is the difference, I think. So I said every human being has native fluency in the language of story. But if you think of a native speaker of any language, any any individual language, you know, English, German, Arabic, Chinese, French, you know, Swahili, what have you, uh, there, are, everyone who is a native speaker of that language can can produce linguistically correct utterances in the language. That's what it means to be a native speaker. But not everyone is an extraordinary communicator. Not everyone has engaged in, and that's exactly the right word, the daily practice of this craft. So my commitment with people who work with me and with the, you know, the content that I share is that I am seducing people to the daily practice. In other words, for me, story and storytelling, I wish story listening wasn't such an awkward phrase because that's, I think, even more important than the telling. It comes first. Listening is our primary skill in communication. Uh, it's the foundation and everything else is built from. Just like you want to be a good writer, you need to read a lot. If you want to be a good storyteller, you need to listen a lot. Uh, I think that story and storytelling, story listening are a living practice. And those that we look up to as master storytellers, uh, orators, authors, um, playwrights, uh, filmmakers, uh, are the ones who have embraced the daily practice of it. And this is where, I mean, I have to be honest, uh, a lot of my colleagues in, in the realm of business storytelling, I think are selling people a little bit short because they're offering a system or a template or a script, uh, you know, uh, an eight-part framework of step one, step two, step three, a paint-by-numbers kind of a thing. And that's, listen, that's better than nothing. That will actually get you in the game great. But at the end of the day, it's story is not a script. Story is not uh, a set of, you know, it's not like one chess move. It's the whole mastery of that realm that will really produce the results for people. It's not as sexy to say that. Uh, it's a little bit harder to sell. But what I want is people to embrace their natural ability and take it to the next level so that in any circumstance, anywhere in their life, they are both listening for and sharing stories that are changing the lives of the people they interact with. That's the goal, not a script to deliver the same way every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... it's um... It's an excellent point. Explain to a total newbie what the most important elements of a story are. Let's say a person who doesn't want right now to be too challenged about it and says, you know, I'd like to learn how to communicate by using story. What would be the most important elements of it? As basic as you get. All right. So this is really basic. There, there are three essential elements of any given story. There is a beginning, 
a middle, and an end. Now, that's not an act of extreme literary genius there, so let me give you a little more insight into what, what needs to be there. One of the things about story that's, that's fascinating is uh, story is something that takes uh, a, an event, a situation, something that happened, usually in the past, and in the sharing of that story with a listener or a reader, it is making that event something that is happening in the present. In other words, the phenomenon of story is a little bit like time travel. You are taking something from somewhere else in place and time and making it present. So why I say that is the basic elements of a story are some of the things you would need to have in order to to experience the story as it's happening. So they are very simple. There is a setting, a scene. There's, this is happening somewhere. Okay, Tell us where. And it's happening at some point in time. So there's a some when. Tell us that. And it's happening to the characters, right? Someone or some ones. So in the beginning of any story, like literally in the first or second sentence, you should be cluing us, especially in a business context where there's less less of a literary and poetic license available. People are kind of wanting you to get right to the point. Tell us the somewhere, some when, and someone right up front. So, for example, uh, you know, it's about not quite 15 years ago that I was standing in the middle of the largest refugee camp in South Darfur, and as I looked around, these makeshift shelters, bits of plastic and sticks stretched to the horizon and i was talking to a young kid who was probably 11 or 12 years old named juma okay so i've given you a few more extra descriptions but in that sentence you have the when the where and the and the who the some ones right so that's it in the beginning however you're setting up your story you've got to locate it uh, in in space and time and tell us who's there okay they're very very basic right that's like i don't know fifth grade level the other thing that every story needs is, and this is essentially the middle, right? Every story needs some point of tension. And that tension could be created through excitement or through fear, through conflict, or through some challenge. It, in other words, there are many different ways to, to actually get that point of tension, uh, a conflict, a dilemma, um, uh, you know, an actual argument, a physical breakdown of some kind, something, some sort of challenge that must be overcome. So somewhere in the middle of the story, you have to get those characters f to face this obstacle, and it creates tension. Okay, that's just a basic building block of story. And then the end is the the outcome, the resolution. What happened? They faced the lion and what? Maybe they were devoured and eaten. <laughs> Maybe they were triumphant. Maybe they pulled the thorn out of its paw and the lion became their friend and then later saved them from the emperor. You know what I mean? Like so you've got to have the characters, the scene, the, the, the obstacle or challenge, the point of tension, and then the resolution. And from those basic elements, you can cook up almost any, any story, any plot line. Some of them will end on a high note. Some of them will end on a low note. Some of them will go through the darkness before they come to the light. Some of them will start high and end up low. I mean, this is where uh, especially novelists and, and, and screenwriters 
love to geek out about plots and plot structure and different types and things like that. That's all fine. That's that's interesting, especially if you're writing a novel or or a film. Uh, in everyday storytelling, the kind that most professional people or you know even uh, you know employees of a large company can engage with in any you know on a daily basis, you don't need a lot of that elaborate stuff. You just need a good beginning, a good middle, and a good end, where you introduce us to a situation, you tell us who was there, what was at stake, and what happened. Hmm. Beautiful. Very, very clear. Now, the hero's journey is often used to teach business storytelling. What's your view on that? So this is, again, where I run a little bit counter to so many of my colleagues who have taken the hero's journey or some version of it and told people, this is what you need to, this is what you need to use to tell your story. And, and look, you know, I have a background in philosophy and literature and history and I really come out of the humanities, even though I have a, I'm a social scientist. I come from a rich tradition of humanistic thinking. So I have a deep appreciation for what Joseph Campbell was doing with this framework. When, when he wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces, when he, when he studied comparative mythology and he looked out at the world's great literary and spiritual traditions, and especially where they intersect in the form of sacred texts, what he saw was a pattern, right? And he gave us a way to think about that structure of myth, particularly in the realm of comparative literature, mythology, and world religions. It's brilliant. And it lets us see some of... And, and if you think about why was he doing this, at some level it was because he wanted to break people out of a box in which they thought their thing was the one thing. And he said, well, that's interesting, you know, because the life of Jesus and the life of the Buddha follow this exact same parallel. Look at that. Ha-ha. <laughs> and the idea is get people thinking, huh, maybe I have a truth but not the truth or the only truth. Right? So he's intentionally, there was something radical about his desire to get people to see our spiritual traditions as parallel traditions rather than as separate ones. So huge appreciation for that. I personally think the hero's journey is a terrible framework to use for business storytelling for a couple of reasons. One, in most presentations of this, the person is being told that they are the hero telling their own story, and I think that's rarely a good idea. Uh, second, it is very elaborate. It's very long. It requires a lot of patience from your audience, and as a practicality, you simply don't have that permission from people. Uh and the third thing is somewhat more um, simplistic, but I think in many ways more profound. It assumes that the only stories worth telling are the epic ones. And I think that's a mistake. I think people need to be skilled in telling smaller scale stories that don't have this huge narrative arc that don't take the hero you know, through their falling and to their darkness and through their return and kind of the complete thing. Because it's in these smaller stories, these anecdotes, these illustrations, the time when kind of stories, that we can actually reveal really significant parts of our shared humanity, but through a smaller uh, story vehicle. And I think that we are suffering from a, a glut of epic stories where everyone thinks that they need to tell their you know, zero to hero, their rags to riches, their woe to win, their struggle to success. And all of a sudden, everyone around you is just a phenomenal hero 
But they're not telling you a story about you. They're telling you a story about them. And the amazing thing that happens when I'm training people to tell a small story, a small S story, not an epic, something every day, and to tell it in such a way that it is their personal story, it's something that happened to them, but it's actually not about them. And through sharing their moment of struggle, that, that particular encounter, that particular failure, whatever the thing is, they're revealing something that your listener or, or viewer, your audience, experiences as their story. Oh, yes, I've been through this too. I, that happened to me. It wasn't the fourth grade with a bunch of girls laughing at me. It was, it was the third grade, and it was the kid who pushed me off my bike. We are connecting the dots, and we can do that better when we're talking about a smaller-scale story than some epic story. I mean, look, your life is not Lord of the Rings. Your life is not Star Wars. So let's do what I like to refer to as more grounded storytelling event-based or anecdotal-based storytelling. And when you have a rich repertoire of, of happenings that you can bring up naturally in a conversation when it's appropriate because you've been listening. Oh, yeah, you know, that reminds me of the time when. And you can share a very powerful but short little story that is speaking about big human things. That's when I've seen you can have the most impact. Uh, you thought I might fight you on that. Actually, um, it makes great sense. The only thing is, I have to inform you, uh, my life is the Game of Thrones. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, well, well, in that case, then, I am Odysseus. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so, listen, we, we, here's the thing that I think, again... I have, a, I have a deep appreciation for all of it, and I just want people to remember that this is a spectrum and it has an entire range of expression. So when you have an epic story to share, you absolutely should share that in a way that does justice to that story. But it cannot be the only thing that you have to share, or people will get sick and tired of hearing, you know, you'll get the, oh, here we go again, there it goes there goes how with his her, you know, the time when he was fishing and the bear, you know. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally agree, actually, yeah. that, that that if, especially in business, if you're not relating it to the person who you are speaking to and making them feel uh, an empathy with their situation and giving them a sense that there's something universal in their struggle, then it's just a lot of noise. That's all it is. It's, it's just ego. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. So Exactly. Yeah, and this yeah. is the thing. And this, if I had a better way to figure this out, uh, it would be helpful to me and to the people I work with. So, you know, we can never get rid of our ego completely. And I don't think we should. I think we should tell stories that serve our ego, but we should also tell stories that make us look really bad. I really think that the, because here's the fundamental truth that most people are not wrapping their heads around. If someone is trying to impress us, we are never impressed. We sniff it out. We know that they're doing that. We know that they're puffing themselves up or shining us on. Like We're just never impressed. And yet, we think that when we approach the market or when we go to a networking event or when we get on stage or when we create something on, you know, for social content, right? that what we should do is try to impress people. 
It's just the most ridiculous thing. You know what really impresses people? Telling a story that takes guts to admit. Because they're going to be sitting there going like, oh my god, like that's true for me too, but I would never admit it on stage. Like, She's so brave. Wow. I love her. She's great. Like, We are impressed by the truth. And the truth is something that always you have to swallow hard a little bit before you actually say it. Because it doesn't look all that good, but it's real. It is the truth. And I always tell my clients, listen, here's a way you, I want you to practice. Like you have to some level make this very methodical so you can practice, even though I'm opposed to templates and, and you know that. At some point in your story, it, you should say, you know, the truth is. And then right after that should come the thing you don't want to admit. You know, like, for example, I will give you just uh, pulling this off the top of my head. I didn't prepare this. But so here we were. We opened the show talking about my time in Darfur. And one way of telling that story is, you know, uh, that I'm so great. I spent 14 months there. I helped make it the biggest news story of 2004, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was on X number, you know, hundreds of live television and radio appearances during that time, like blah, blah, blah. The truth is I was in Darfur because I was chasing a girl. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the honest truth. I didn't go there for noble reasons. I was in love with somebody who was going there, and I had to figure out a way to get a job there so I could try to make this relationship work. And it didn't work. And part of the reason why it didn't work was I was there for the wrong reasons, in both the relationship and the, the work that I was doing. I didn't know, I didn't have a real appreciation for what this was about. It was a very selfish thing on multiple levels. And yet, it's one of the things that has fundamentally changed, that experience, that time, fundamentally changed the way that I view myself in the world. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, dot, 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 <laughs> I was chasing a girl, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone has their version in any situation of the truth. You know, the truth is, I was hoping I would get away with it. The truth is, I didn't want them to know that I was scared. The truth is, dot, 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 right? So working that simple little phrase into the middle of, a story, an anecdote, where we tell one on ourselves is absolutely uh, much more powerful than trying to hide the truth so we look good. Hiding the truth never looks good. No, I, I agree with that. It's um, And some of the people today who are leaders uh, whom I admire have done exactly that. I'm thinking of Joe Polish, you're you're familiar mm-hmm. with him? Uh, absolutely, you know, he's he's a master of what I'm talking about. Yeah, he here. is. I mean, you know, yes. he he talks about being, you know, strung out on cocaine to the point where he was almost going to die, and being, you know, um, sexually abused, etc. And today, one of the world's most uh, loved and respected uh, networkers, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a master marketer, but he's all, and he's also, as he's come to share more about his own struggles in the past with drug addiction and sexual abuse, has become a real driving force for the recovery community and really changing the conversation about addiction yeah. globally. And that is amazing. I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah. No, I know. Um, he's um, quite an amazing human being, indeed. In fact, what was the. Um It'll come back to me. Let's, I want to know now what you think about the role of storytelling. Has it changed in our digital age? So it has and it hasn't. Uh, And the way that I explain this to people is, 
you know, we've upgraded the pipes, but story is still the water, right? We're putting out our words, our messages, our narratives in new forms through new channels, but the core principles of story have not changed in forever. The core principles of what it takes to connect, I mean, what Aristotle wrote uh, about rhetoric and poetics and the art of, of, of connecting with an audience hasn't changed. So, yes, we can now much, we, we, in a way, there's a paradox here, and, and this is something that I think we all are really grappling with, which is it's never been easier to get a story out into the world. I mean, everyone is walking around you know, with this incredible HD quality production studio in their pocket, right? This smartphone that we all have, according to the research, within arm's reach, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, this device can do so many incredible things in terms of live streaming, in terms of video production, editing, etc., photos, the written word, like it's all there. I grew up in a radio station, and my dad owned the radio station. We used to do these remote broadcasts where it would take an entire truck, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of gear, and three engineers, six hours, to set the thing up to do a live remote broadcast in 1978. And we've got that now in our pocket at the push of a button. That's amazing, right? So the we've seriously upgraded the pipes, and we now have the ability to get stories and messages and you know communication out into the world. The paradox, of course, is that everyone has that ability, and so now there is a lot more noise. It's harder than ever to cut through. It's harder than ever to connect with people in a meaningful way, you know. So I think what we need to do is ground ourselves in the fundamentals. A great story will work, whether it's drawn on the wall of a cave or whether it's being delivered through you know, Facebook Live or on stage. I mean, the story is the thing. And knowing something about the pipes is important, right? Knowing how to use digital technology, knowing how to use uh, the distribution uh, channels that we have freely available to us. Uh, and how to amplify them with paid media to make that reach even further. Uh, and to do that on the side of branding and messaging and storytelling, not on the side of selling your, your stuff, is really important. But I think knowing that it's the fundamentals that matter, uh, you know, the ingredients that we talked about a few minutes ago are still the thing that most of us need to spend more time practicing. Hmm. So before you lose yourself and the next course on Facebook ads or whatever, um, make sure you've got the, you know, the, the, here's what I love about story is you can literally take the story out into the world right now by getting up, opening the door, stepping outside, finding a person and connecting with them. If you can't do that, you're going to have a hard time making any kind of digital media connect with people. So what I like to tell my clients is use local networking events uh, for a very different reason. Right? This is not the direction you, we were going when you asked me the question, but I want to throw this in here because I think it's really valuable. There's this incredible um, documentary from, I don't remember exactly when, maybe like 2002 or something, uh, when Jerry Seinfeld had finished his run with Seinfeld, the TV show, and was trying to get back into uh, comedy. 
and I, I can't remember what the documentary is called. It's on Netflix. It might just be called Comedian. But anyway, it's the Jerry Seinfeld documentary, not the more recent one, which is also good and worth watching, but the one from, you know, like 17 years ago. And in this documentary, you see him working these little tiny clubs in New York, and he's trying to get a good solid three minutes together. And he's struggling. I mean, this is a guy who just finished like the most watched television show in the history of the universe. And he hadn't been doing stand-up, and now he's trying to get it back. What's he do? He takes little bits out, and he's working on them. And he's sitting down with a pad and paper, and he's writing them out, and he's crossing it out, and he's going up on stage. He's bombing because it's not funny. And he goes back, and he sits at the table like, man, that was rough. Everybody should watch this film because it shows the process of crafting a story. This is what I think we all need to be doing more of in our real life. Now, you're not going to go do stand-up necessarily. Oh, that'd be cool. But you can go to local networking events. Instead of going to try to get business, go to try out new material. Go chat with people. Ask them questions and then try a little story nugget. Try this out. Try that out. See what how they respond and just go have fun with it. If you're there in order to connect and share and serve, you'll have a way better time than if you're there to ha- pass out business cards and try to get new clients. It just and, it, and you'll get better at your craft. They're happening in every major city, every day of the week, all year long. Find them, go to them, and practice your craft. You remind me of, um, that's Bob Berg's uh, advice, eh? the go-giver. Yeah, you know, I haven't uh, read his book. I met Bob a number of years ago and just had a friendly chat in the hallways of a, of a um, business workshop, but I hadn't read the book. That's cool to know that he's giving that advice. Oh, yeah. That's I mean, that, that, that's his entire philosophy of networking is you go there not to take, but to give. And, and by doing that, you'll probably be the one they remember more than anybody else. Absolutely. You know, it's a fascinating you know, thing. Have you ever had this experience, Lewis? I, I've had this dozens of times where you're on a plane, you're sitting next to somebody. It could be a six-year-old, you know, or a 60-year-old, and you, and you ask them questions and you listen. And they do all the talking. And three hours later, when the flight lands, they get up and you get up and they say, well, this was really great talking to you. You're so interesting. Yeah, And I'm, you've shared it's... very little, right? Because... If you want to be interesting, be interested. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's uh, that's that's definitely wonderful, wonderful advice. So, what does the Happy Day Express have to do with who you <laughs> with who you are today? <laughs> well, okay. So, I grew up in my dad's radio station, right? And he had started this thing uh, a couple years before I was born. And at the time, he started the station. Actually, he came from Northern California down to Southern California to take a job as the program director for a small college radio station. And they didn't tell him at the time he accepted the offer that the station had lost its FCC license and was off the air. So he shows up for work on the first day, and he's basically the only guy uh, there. And they said, oh, yeah, the first thing you have to do is figure out how to get us back on the air. So he did, and he had a, an annual budget in those first years of $3,000. For the station, uh, his own salary was being paid by the communication department at the college, but he, you know, three thousand dollars to run the station. Fast forward thirty-three or so years, at the peak of it, before he left, 
it was one of the largest independent nonprofit Christian radio stations in the country with over a million dollar a year annual budget. Every dollar almost being raised through individual listener donations. You know, no no big sponsors, no ads, obviously, because nonprofit. Uh, and how he did that was through story. And I didn't realize that at the time. When I was five years old, 1978, he got this bright idea that our family should produce a weekly children's show on the station. And we had a studio at home. And uh, this is back when a studio, you know, was tape decks and a big mixing board and you would edit with a razor blade you don't know, cut the tape and splice it back together with another piece of sticky tape and so he started writing the scripts for a weekly show called the happy day express and it was uh him and my mom and me and my little sister uh were the voices on the show and uh, we would introduce songs that then he would mix in later from records and he would tell a story or he would read a kind of a from a from a book he kind of serialized these things and so every week there would be a little a little story episode in in the middle of it we recorded three years of this show um weekly episodes and then it played in reruns uh, those three years until i was in my late 20s and what's what's funny is i never related to it like this is amazing this is going to be this is going to determine the future of my professional career. By the time I was you know, late teens, early 20s, it was a source of major embarrassment and humiliation because my little five, six, seven-year-old voice was still on the radio every Friday night, and I was 25, 26, 27. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? So what's funny is it was only when I started developing the methodology I have now that helps people connect with parts of their own personal history that they have probably forgotten that still inform their unique story proposition, in other words, who they are in the world, in the matter of their work. It was only when I started developing that methodology that I realized, holy crap, this applies to me too. I had this experience and upbringing, and I downplayed it. I never thought about it. And even though I went on to work in media and communications and journalism and you know humanitarian relief, media spokespersonship, et cetera, et cetera, and even though I was an anthropologist who was learning the role of language in creating culture and identity and studying that academically and doing field research and so on, I never connected the dots. What I've found is, for most of us, we've lived our life forward one step at a time, and unless we take time to stop and and understand it by looking backward, we're missing a lot of what's really compelling and interesting about us. I, I assert that every human being is vastly more interesting than they realize, and certainly than they let on in their business communication. Mm-hmm. Because there are aspects of our life we have forgotten about because there's a few difficult parts of our life we can't forget. So my story print methodology, a story print is like a fingerprint, it's unique to you, but it's mostly invisible and leaves a mark on everything you touch. The story print process helps people connect with parts of their personal history that they have forgotten about and that they can now use as part of the way they introduce themselves, the way they talk about themselves and really sharing their unique story proposition with the world. So that's the Happy Day Express. It was this kind of goofy 30-minute children's show on Friday nights, and, and, um, and I didn't know at the time that it was essentially going to be 
my entire work. Like, no, that's what I'm doing now. I had no idea I was going to create a storytelling monster. Right. <laughs> <laughs> a good monster. A good monster. Uh, where do you see yourself in five years? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I am in the process of continuing to speak uh, and and do my consulting work. I lead workshops and I work with individuals, individual business leaders who want to really leverage the power of personal storytelling, both internally in their organization, if it's a larger company, or externally with the world in terms of creating what I call a personal thought leader or a personal leadership brand. Um, and... Uh, I'm in the process now of opening a digital radio station here in Phoenix, which will serve the local community. But I really think that taking this message about the power of story and the unique power of our voice uh, out to companies and out to the world is what I'll be doing in five years. I see myself doing more, even more speaking on stage and doing more corporate trainings. The reality is this. We have the greatest communication tool available to us in and we've always had it, and it is our voice. Most people are spending a lot of time when it comes to branding thinking about the look of the brand and not very much about the sound of it, right? What is the voice of your brand? What is, how does it sound? And how do you connect with people through our voice? Voice is very intimate. You know, the fact that you right now listening are hearing me in your ears and you have an opinion of me, and it could be good, it could be bad, but we've spent this time together. If you're still here, you're experiencing something about the way our voice connects us with each other. You can be doing the same thing. You can be in someone else's ears, and probably should be, if you know, you're listening to this from the perspective of, let's change our stories, change our lives, change the world. So I'm just going to be doing more of that and training other people to be more effective in, in doing it for themselves in their own way with their own voice. Beautiful. And if you could change, if, if you could wave a magic wand, Adrian, and change just one thing in the world, what would it be? So the thing that I would change would actually not be in the world. It would be in how we see the world. And I would want everyone to realize in some sort of profound way, like, it was just obvious from the moment I waved my wand and forever onward, we realized the reality of the fact that human beings are a single species on this planet. That there is more physical difference between a pigeon and a dove than there is between you and any other person on this earth. And we don't live like that. We live like physical differences, which are real, they're visible difference. Some people are taller, some are shorter, some are wider, some are thinner, some are darker, some are lighter, etc., etc., right? We live like physical differences have some sort of significance, and they do not. They do not. The scientific consensus on this is solid and has been solid for nearly a 100 years. So I would wave a wand that has us relate to ourselves as ourselves, and actually see every other person as a part of us. We are all in this boat together. There is only one boat. And if there's a hole in your side of the boat, I've got a problem. So I should step in to help you fix it, right? If I could do that, that would be phenomenal. I love it. It's, um, 
Yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, it's it's true and it's it's powerful and it's it's healing to the world. What what, what is your favorite book? Oh man, I mean, the one that immediately popped into my head, so I might as well say it uh, is uh, I, I love the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, mm-hmm. and what I love about it is he's creating in that book a kind of a story, a master narrative. There is this struggle. It's epic. It's a struggle between you, the creator, and this phenomenon called resistance, right? That's the monster in the book. And he's also very practical in that, in that book and in others since then um, about what there is to do to, to sort of – and, you know, he brings us a, a warrior's mentality to it. So it's about doing battle with this beast called resistance, and that's fine. Uh, that's a book that I probably need to reread at least once a year. Um, because it's just so compelling and also shows us the way. What there is to do is show up, you know, <laughs> tighten your boots and get to work. Mm. I love that book as well. Favorite quote? Favorite quote? Uh, I think my favorite quote is from Socrates, who, of course, was a character in Plato's dialogues. Uh, it's very simple and it's very profound, and that is that wisdom begins in wonder before we can be wise we have to be curious wisdom begins in wonder Uh, i remember alex mendozian talking about have a beginner's mind Mm -hmm. yeah i love that how can people contact you adrian so i am available wherever wherever google search results are to be had uh I, my my home on the web is storyprofit.com. That's the, my business consulting practice. And there will be other properties that I'm spinning up for the radio station and so on. But uh, you could start with a Google search for Adrian McIntyre, and you'll find me on uh, every social network. And uh, I'm a, an email or a phone call away. Um, and I'm putting out more and more. I've, I've come to realize recently that it's not the information I have in my workshops that really makes the profound difference for people. It's the time we have interacting about the frameworks and the techniques. So I'm currently gearing up to publish much, much more of my quote-unquote proprietary methodology freely uh, available online. So look for that on LinkedIn and Facebook and on my site as well, storyprofit.com. And spell McIntyre for people. Sure. So the first name, Adrian, is A-D-R-I-A-N, and McIntyre is M. C-I-N-T-Y-R-E. Beautiful. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? I think just circling back around to where we started, Lewis, before you can change your story, you have to see it as a story and then realize the power of story in all of our lives. Stories are sticky. And we often say that with a marketer's sensibility that, you know, we tell stories that people get stuck with. But what we forget is that we get stuck with our own story. And so part of what I'm trying to do with my private clients is help them catch a glimpse of that story themselves so that they can see it for what it is. Because once we see it, we can do something about it. Before you can change the story, you have to see it as a story. I want to thank you so much. Um, this, of course, has been particularly enjoyable for me because it goes to the heart of what I'm doing with this uh, with this podcast. And you have um, 
brought a fascinating and lucid perspective to it and contributed a lot to our listeners today. Thanks again. It has been my pleasure, and thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you once again, storytellers, for spending your time today with me and Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I know that you feel that this has been time well spent. Adrian has a unique perspective on the world, certainly on story, and that perspective can change people's lives for the better. Pay this forward. Let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And of course, go to the website and grab the free ebook that I've created for you, Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Books, books, books. Readers are leaders. Adrian's favorite book, he said, is The War of Art. Not The Art of War, but The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. This is also a life-changing book, easy to read and truly mind-expanding, eye-opening. Go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and choose either that book or any other book of your choice from more than 180,000 titles. We're talking about audio books. Get one. Start listening to it and enrich your world immediately. There were so many incredible insights that the golden nuggets that Adrian gave us today. For instance, his idea that story can help us to serve the world. As he said, not thinking in terms of changing it, but serving it. And when you're serving it and you're inspiring others to serve it, you actually are changing it. He also spoke about the fact that we are hardwired for story and that feel-good chemicals are released in our brains when we hear stories that engage us. That is absolutely marvelous. And think about the idea that you don't really have to work at being a storyteller because by being human, you already are. We are storytelling machines. The one idea that jumps out to me the most and is something that I would like you to focus on in the next week and apply it to your life in order to enrich it is in Adrian's own words, he said that story is to humans as water is to fish. And by that he means that a fish navigates through water and sees through the water, but does not see the water. Just like we navigate through our narratives, 
The stories that we create, we don't see them, but we see the world through the filter of those stories. Why is this important? Because it gives you the power over any situation, any circumstance, anything that may be causing you pain. Recognize that the reason that a circumstance feels awful to you is has a lot to do with the way you're seeing it, with the narrative that you have created about that circumstance. So how about in the next week, you choose one thing in your life that you really are troubled by, or that's giving, that constantly gives you irritation, maybe beyond irritation, gives you a source of pain, and you wish that you could change it, but you don't see how, have the courage and the trust to begin changing your narrative about it, change the way you see it, and lo and behold, you might be amazed, it may seem miraculous, that that circumstance has also changed. The world changes when we change. Like Gandhi said, be the change that you want to see in the world. And to help you do that, begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.